Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll be looking at questions 16 through 19. Let's read them. Question 16. Why must he, the mediator, be very man and also perfectly righteous? Answer. Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question 17. Why must he and one person be also very God? Answer. That he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, which is a quote from 1 Corinthians 1.30. Question 19. Whence knowest thou this? Answer. From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise and afterward published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten son. As we've worked through the first five Lord's Days and have seen the catechism's progression, starting out with that wonderful first question, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Jesus. Jesus. The next three questions, they led us through that dark valley of sin, through our own sin, that condition that we've all fallen into. They point us to Adam, our original sin, our head in whom we have fallen, the one to whom, the one through whom his sin is imputed. Our sin nature is given. And then last week, in Lord's Day 5, we saw that strange word, redemption. Why is it strange? It's strange that a sinner, such a wicked person, wicked people, who deserve wrath, who deserve hell, who deserve God's punishment, could be brought near to God again. It's a strange and lovely and beautiful word. In the day that thou eatest thereof, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said to Adam, Thou shalt surely die. Yet he lived another day. His body eventually gave way to the effects of sin, and he physically died. And so too everyone since, and everyone after, will physically die. We are all rushing towards the grave. And we have one hope. We have one hope. And that is Christ, who took upon himself human nature. Who took upon himself human nature. Bore the wrath of God on our behalf. On our behalf. And this is why the Heidelberg Catechism exists. Though they get it wrong in a couple places. We'll talk about that. It helps us to see guilt, grace, gratitude. That structure that we're going to talk about time and time again. 
showing us the guilt which we all have in Adam and in our own sins. The grace, that strange word grace, redemption, propitiation, justification, the divine dilemma solved that God cannot justify the wicked and yet the wicked are justified. And that is done in Christ, in Christ alone. And then gratitude. How then shall we live? If this be the God who has created us, if this be the Christ which is given to us, if this be the state that we live in now as believers, how then shall we live? We shall live with gratitude. We'll look at four points following all four questions tonight. First, the mediator, as man, answers the justice and requirements of the law. Number two, the mediator, as God, fulfills the justice and requirements of the law. Number three, the mediator is the God-man, Christ Jesus, and he alone. Number four, we have certainty of this one mediator through and in the scriptures alone. Scriptures alone. Christ alone. Scriptures alone. First, the mediator as man answers the justice and the requirements of the law. This is found in question 16. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Why must he, the mediator, be very man and also perfectly righteous? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Let's notice a few things about this first point, that the mediator as man answers the justice and the requirements of the law. Notice first, the mediator must be man. Why? Because the same human nature that sinned must also be the same human nature which satisfies the punishment for that sin. For that sin which was committed by that nature. Humans sinned, therefore humans deserve the punishment. Man sinned, and therefore man must die. God told Adam, as we mentioned earlier, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That he must die for breaking that covenant of works that seems to be there. In regards, if you don't see a covenant of works there, there's a command given. Don't eat of it. And he did. He sinned. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans Chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he also says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And that through man, sin entered the world and death by sin, Romans 5, 12. So we see the progression there. We see that man brought sin into the world. Man disrupted the created order. Man brought evil and wickedness into The world that he was supposed to cultivate for God. That he was supposed to glorify God through and in. Rather, man chose to sin, to break God's law. Man sinned man's sin. Right? Man sinned man's sin. Therefore, man must bear man's punishment. Notice also that therefore, no other creature can satisfy. No other creature can satisfy on behalf of man. Why? They are, mere, they are mere creatures. That is why. Another creature cannot satisfy for us because they're simply creatures. No, not even the angels. Not even the, the angels. Those great, powerful, immortal beings. 
Those who left their goodly state, those who left their righteous state with Satan, cannot be punished on behalf of man. Why? For they have their own punishment that they have to bear for their sin. It would not be righteous of God to add to their punishment guilt that was not theirs. So the devils cannot satisfy for us. Because I've actually heard that argument before. Oh, well, why can't God just then... I mean, the devils are already in a bad position there. They're already messed up. Couldn't God just put it on them? No, because that would be unjust of God. So not the devils and neither the holy angels who remained in that righteous state. They kept their righteous state and their purity. Why can't they then satisfy for us? It would be cruel and unjust of God to punish the innocent with the unrighteous. Far be it from Jehovah to do so. Remember, Abram pleads the same for Sodom and Gomorrah, knowing that Lot was there. Shall the ruler of all the earth do wicked? Far be it. So God cannot then give those beings, those holy beings, the holy angels, which deserve reward, rather than giving them reward for their obedience, then give them punishment for the guilt of sins that are not theirs. Notice also that besides all of this, besides the angels, there cannot, besides, besides them being wicked and holy and it beyond just for God to impute our sin to them, besides all this, they cannot bear such a weight of sin. For even one sinner, the weight would be far too great for an angel to bear. They could in no wise satisfy the wrath that was due to one single human being, more or less a great multitude that no one can number. A great multitude of sinners. They cannot even obtain satisfaction for wrath due to sin for one sinner, how much less for a multitude. Notice also, even less then. If the angels can't do it, even less can a sinful man do it. That's where our catechism is trying to point us to. Even less can a sinner undertake to satisfy the wrath due for another. The angels cannot do it. Do you think a sinful man can? And even if a sinful man could, hypothetically, satisfy his own sin, the the penalty due for his own sin, even if he could do that, and he certainly cannot, for hell is everlasting, since the sinner's sin is everlasting, and it ever breaks forth in fresh sin against God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Since that is the case... And even if he could satisfy for his own sin, somehow, he certainly then cannot endure the wrath due also for another soul. Since he has not power, nor is God so unjust as to punish him for somebody else's sin. Thus, the mediator of God's elect, the mediator of saved sinners, must be without sin and perfectly righteous. And that brings us to our next point. Hence, The instructor tells us that the mediator must be very man and also perfectly righteous. He must be both of those things. Man, if he is to have a mediator at all, if it would even be possible for him to have a mediator at all, must have one mediator that shares his own nature. He must share his own nature. For as we spoke about earlier, man sinned and man must pay the punishment for sin. So the mediator, if he is to have one at all, must share in man's nature. 
The mediator must be of the same nature as the ones he seeks to mediate for. It's pretty simple. And this is where the incarnation comes alive. A lot of people ask, what does a Jewish man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago have to do with me? What does a Jewish man being born in a stable have to do with me? How is that relevant? Well, he's God's son. He's come to die for you, and you believe in him, you'll be saved. Okay, but how? Why did he have to become man? This is why. He had to share in man's nature because man is the one who sinned. Hence, the word, as we read about in the first chapter of John's gospel, that word that was with God and was God, in the beginning with God, became flesh, we see in John 1.14. He dwelt among us. He took on human nature to be the mediator of humans. Humans require a human mediator. The mediator of man had to be, as Philippians 2.8 says, found in fashion as a man. He had to be one who was made of woman and also made under the law, Galatians 4.4. He had to be made in human nature to suffer as a man for men, as well as made under the law to obey it, to fulfill all its righteousness, to fulfill all of its holy requirements, and that on behalf of man. That's what a mediator does. So he had to not only be man and take on man's nature in becoming flesh and being born of a woman, but he also had to be made under the law. Born as one who's under the law so that he might fulfill all of its statutes, fulfill all of its requirements. He had to be sinless, hence righteous. Perfectly righteous, the, uh, what Heidelberg says. He had to be perfectly righteous because that then means sinless. To sin is to not obey the law of God. So being righteous means obeying all the laws of God. Thus he's sinless. And he had to be sinless in order to be an adequate sacrifice for sinners. If he was going to be a mediator at all, he had to be this kind of mediator. A sinless one. A righteous one. And that's part of the meaning of the word propitiation in Romans 3.25 that we talked about the other week. That's, that's an aspect of it. That he fulfills righteousness on our behalf and gives it to us, it's imputed to us, and expiates the guilt due for sin. It's more than just expiation. Some old translations uh, put expiate. That's half true. We're not, we're not justified in the sense that we're only sinless, and now we have a clean slate. Now what do you do? You try to add up works? I mean, that's what the Roman Catholics teach. We are both expiated of our sins and thus also righteous is imputed to us. And that's what God being propitious to us and towards us means. That both of these things coalesce in the atonement. So a creature without a human nature cannot satisfy for the debts of a human being. A creature without a human nature cannot satisfy the debts incrued by human nature. And also a sinful creature cannot then therefore satisfy the wrath for those sins incurred under that nature. Only a completely righteous human could do this as a mediator. And such we have. Completely righteous human. Second point. The mediator as God, first talked about as man, the mediator as God fulfills the justice and the requirements of the law. So first as man, now as God. As man, the mediator could undertake for men 
as their sinless and righteous substitute. As God, the mediator can sustain in that human nature the burden of God's wrath against sinners. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. Catechism puts it that way. As God, the mediator can sustain in that human nature which he has the burden of God's wrath against sinners. That's found in question 17. Why must he and why must he in one person be also very God? Answer, that he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. So notice a few things here. It was only as God that the mediator could have the power or the value or the worth, if you will, to suffer for sinners in his human nature. Say that again. It was only as God that the mediator could have either power or worth to suffer for sinners in his human nature. The mediator could not have a mere human nature or a mere human power or worth in his human nature, but of necessity, as a substitute for us, the mediator had to have divine power and worth as well. Why? Notice secondly, this was necessary as a mediator that he, as a mediator, might obtain righteousness of life to us on our behalf, expiating sin's debt and justifying our human nature through imputed righteousness, as we spoke about a minute ago. If you want, you could flip over to Isaiah 53. If not, I'll be reading it for you. Isaiah 53, we'll look specifically at verses 8 and 11. 8 and 11. Verse 8 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? Notice this. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And then in verse 11, He, the servant of Jehovah, the Messiah, Jesus, He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. For by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. So he, being Jehovah, shall look upon the servant and see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. That's an amazing statement. That Jehovah would look upon Christ in his suffering, in his travail, as he cried out that cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And be pleased. He shall be satisfied, it says. For Christ undertook Christ undertook, and by his knowledge, by the the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah's knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So his knowledge can either be referring to uh, knowledge of what would take place, the note in one commentary I read, or knowledge of the law and that he keeps the law. Knowledge of the law and that he keeps the law. So I think that's a better interpretation there by his knowledge i.e by his keeping of the law knowing its power and its truth and its necessity to keep he shall shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities so upon christ were our iniquities cast the iniquities of the messiah's people were upon his shoulders and the lord saw his travail saw his sufferings saw what he was inflicting upon him and was satisfied, for it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. 
First Peter 3.18, if you want to turn there. First Peter 3.18. First Peter 3.18. Remember, it's necessary that the mediator might obtain righteousness of life to us. He expiates our sins. He does away with our sins. He satisfies the wrath against them and also brings us righteousness on our behalf by fulfilling the law's requirements. And in 1 Peter 3.18, Scripture says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. I had a friend of mine when I first became a Christian. He's a missionary now in Thailand. And he would always say, everybody wants justice until they're the one that justice needs to be inflicted upon. Then they want mercy. Hey, that that guy should be thrown in prison. That guy should have the just requirements of law met upon him. And then when it's them saying the seed, hey, let's be merciful. Man, give me some mercy. Give me another chance. And, and this is amazing here. The just for the unjust. If anyone could go, hey, hold up a minute. Wait, I'm righteous. I have iniquity being put on me that's not mine. It was Jesus. He was the just. And the just suffered for the unjust. For you and me. For you and me. As believers, Christ, the just, was put to death. For you and I, the unjust ones. It's put to death in the flesh, quickened by the Spirit, meaning it's raised from the dead. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. It says this about the Messiah in his days. Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, Israel being the people of God. They will be called by this name, the Lord our righteousness. Robert Murray McShane, a great 1800s Scottish Presbyterian. He died at 29 of tuberculosis. He did amazing things for God. Andrew Bonar, a friend of his, wrote his biography. Very, very encouraging. Inspiring. He wrote a famous poem called Jehovah Tzedkenu, which is the Hebrew there for the Lord our righteousness. And that was essentially the banner that flew over his life. was Jehovah, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Notice also that we truly have the righteousness of our mediator. Because he was God. Because he suffered and could bear the weight of the wrath of God due towards us. We then have truly. We truly have righteousness. We truly have restored fellowship with God. Again, what are we doing here? What are we doing as we walk through our, our life? We've got to have reminders. We've got to keep in the word. We've got to keep our eyes on Christ. For we truly have been given righteousness. If this be the case, dear Christian, how then shall you live? How then shall you live? You shall give yourself to the Lord. You shall deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. All of the pain... All of the sorrow, all of the inconveniences, all of the self-pity, all of the sin and its fallout in your life will slowly melt away when our eyes are upon 
Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul could say. A man who suffered very much more than we do. Probably few men have suffered more than the Apostle Paul. He certainly suffered in his body more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Physically. Yet he said in Romans 8.18. For the present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Not even worth comparing. And therefore he took strength in his weakness. And he rejoiced in his weaknesses. He rejoiced in his weaknesses. What comfort. We truly have the righteousness of God given to us. It's not poetry. The Bible is not just interesting stories. It's not just encouraging words on a cup. It is true. Or it is not. It's true or it is not. There is no middle ground. Either Christ really did this for you, believer, or you are hopeless. You are of all men most to be pitied, in fact, the scriptures say. And if this be true, you have all reason and all motivation to live for Christ, to live for God and give yourself fully away. I've heard some old, older missionaries and some men who have lived long lives for God say that their only regret was that when they were younger, when they yet had strength in them, that they did not give themselves more fully to God, more fully to the glory of Christ, sacrifice more, work more, deny themselves more. That's their one regret. That's their one regret. Song of Solomon 4.7 Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. I love that. And you should too. That is what our groom, Christ, sees when he looks upon us. That's what God Almighty, because of the propitiation, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and our subsequent justification, that's what he sees. And when we come before God, we can come before him knowing that he sees us as spotless. And he can say, thou art all fair, my love. Thou art all fair. There is no spot in thee. No spot. What comfort. Jehovah said, Kenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Remember Hebrews 7.25. says, wherefore, he, referring to Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. To the uttermost. You will never leave off coming to Christ, coming to God through Christ, lacking. You will never leave him and go, I needed more and I didn't get it. I needed more and I didn't get it. You'll be saved to the uttermost. Saved to the uttermost. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, that he came to give life and life abundantly. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. And life abundantly. Hebrews 4.16 then also says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Come boldly unto the throne of grace. We have all reason to draw near unto God for Jehovah Tzidkenu. Jehovah Tzidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Let's also see the third point. The third point. The mediator then 
is the God-man, Jesus Christ, and him alone. And him alone. There is no other mediator. God has given no other mediator by which we may come to him, through. That's why we are able to come boldly under the throne of grace. Because he's given us Jesus Christ. That's what it says in question 18 of the Heidelberg. Question 18 of the Heidelberg. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, which is a quote from 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Where else are we going to find an answer to our problem? Where else? The first two points we looked at, that the mediator must be man, that he may die for men, and then the mediator also must be God, that he'll be able to do such a thing, to bear the wrath. And then we ask, where where are we going to find this mediator? Who is that mediator? The mediator is the God-man, Jesus Christ, and him alone. Where else are we going to find such a perfect coalescence of both human and divine natures in one person? And thus find a mediator for ourselves. We are not going to anywhere else. Whether it's our own devices. Trying to figure out how to live life. Figure out what we want to do. Whether it be other religions. Whether it be morality. None of that will work. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our Lord said. It's him alone who can be our mediator. Notice. He is made unto us. All things needful for our salvation. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. If you want to flip there. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that very thing. That's what it's summing up there. That Jesus is made unto us all things that are needful for our salvation. You'll notice four points that it makes. Four points. In, in verse 30 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Paul says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God, by God's authority, by God's sending of the mediator, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Four. Four things. Wisdom from foolishness. We were once foolish. The message of the cross was foolishness because we perish. And now it has been made wisdom. The wisdom of God. I know that's true in my life. A lot of people I know, and some of you in this room, were, were blessed enough to grow up in a Christian home and be protected from much of the sin that you could have fallen into. Not that you didn't fall into sin, but you were certainly spared from much that you could have otherwise been exposed to or committed in a more lewd and wicked fashion. Not so me. In God's providence, I was an atheist, so-called. And I railed against God. I hated God. I hated Christians. I hated Christianity. It was foolishness unto me, for I perished. And then, when Christ's light shone in my heart through the preaching of the gospel, then he became wisdom. And thus, he is wisdom to us. And it doesn't matter what your background is, there was a time you came from it being foolishness to wisdom. To God revealing to you, supernaturally, sovereignly, who he is. 
doesn't mean you had to have had some crisis at some point in your faith, in your life. I hope my children and my goddaughter never know a day, never know a day where they don't know God. That being in a Christian home, being raised by Christians, attending church, seeing the means of grace before them, partaking in the means of grace, they will never know a time. I, I had this huge you know, sin and then I came to Christ. I, I pray that that is not the case for my children. But there will come a day where it goes from foolishness to wisdom. Also, we see righteousness. Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. Righteousness from unrighteousness. We see no benefit in him. We see no use of him. The mediator is of no use to us. We are in unrighteousness. We are in our wicked state. We are unconverted, unregenerated. And then, again, God makes Christ unto us righteousness. The one place that we can obtain such righteousness. The one place that we can have righteousness. Have a right standing with God. What else is there to live for? What else is there to live for in in light of who God is and what he's done for us? Also, you see sanctification. God made Christ Jesus sanctification unto us. What does that mean? What does it mean that he was made sanctification unto us? Sanctification from wickedness. A life of wickedness, a life of self-pursuit. Even if it's moral, seemingly moral in comparison to somebody else, you are still a wicked sinner outside of Christ. No matter how moral you are. No matter how good at church you are. No matter anything. You are lost. Even if it be in Adam's sin alone, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Thou art lost. Yet, in Christ, you go from a life of wickedness continuing to increase and heap up their wickedness, as Thessalonians says, unto sanctification. Sanctified meaning being set apart. Set apart from a lifestyle of sin. Set apart from yourself. From unregenerate living to Christ. Set apart for a holy purpose. For God. If you are a Christian here in this room, you are set apart. Christ, in Christ, you are sanctified. You are set apart for a reason. How then shall you live? It's not for yourself. If you live for yourself, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong if you're living for yourself. No matter what that thing you think you need to do is. You are not living for God. And we are to live for God. That's the joy. What is the chief end of man? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. Best one. Best first question of any of the catechisms. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, enjoy him forever. And then the larger catechism doesn't one up on it. To fully enjoy him forever. I love it. To fully enjoy him forever. Also, redemption. He's made into us redemption. From what? From damnation. That's the opposite there. From damnation. From heading straight for hell. Now, we have redemption. Again, we talked about that strange word at the beginning. Redemption? Grace? Mercy? For who? For me? For you? That's absurd. Yet in Christ it is given. Out of his love. He demonstrates his love towards us. Fourth, last point. 
we have certainty that this is the case. Certainty. Why? Why do we have certainty that this Redeemer is our mediator? Why do we have certainty that Christ Jesus, the God-man, is the mediator we're looking for and that we need? How do we know? Through and in the Scriptures, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Hearing by the Scriptures read and preached and explained and exposited and expounded. That's where faith is given. That's where faith is given. With faith comes a true, resting certainty. Question 19. Whence knowest thou this? So they lay out all of this great doctrine. And then, how do you know? How do you know? And we get this all the time. And, and sometimes we doubt this as Christians ourselves. How do, how do I know that this is real? How do I know that this is truly what it is? How do I know that I am then a Christian? Whence knowest thou this? Here's their answer. From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, covenant of grace, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. That's how you know. That's how you have certainty. The scriptures are the mirror in which we, be, we obtain knowledge. The scriptures are the mirror through which we obtain any knowledge of life or practice or faith. They are, as Calvin said, paraphrase, are divinely given spectacles or glasses. Before we're blind and he gives us these glasses and now we can see spiritually. That's the scriptures for us. Notice a few things about this. Our reformed forefathers, this is mid-1500s, our reformed forefathers, all the way through the Puritan era, all the way after, until very recently in modernity, had certainty in what they believed. And certainty in God's words because of the scripture. The Bible was given to provide us with this certainty. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, the scriptures are provided to give a certainty of the things they write about. Why? How do they, how do, they do this? Once knowest this, thou this. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Fully equipped, ready to go, everything he needs concerning faith and practice. Certain. A measure of certainty. Obviously, we are not omniscient. We do not know everything. We cannot know what God knows. And that's where existentialism leads. That's where a lot of modern theologians have gone. I wouldn't say, I'm not going to put the adverb Christian in front of it, because I don't think they are. But a lot of theologians have gone that way. Oh, well, we can't know anything. We might not be sitting here. This might be a projection of someone's reality somewhere else. No. It's not true. How do we know? Certainty. We have a measure of certainty. It's not perfect certainty. It's not perfect knowledge. That belongs to God alone. But we have certainty. And our Reformed fathers had no problem using that word. Our Reformed forefathers had no problem saying, all scripture is inspired by God. It's given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable. 
Why? Because it points us to Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus Christ. Our modern evangelical leaders, in a lot of cases, want to take that certainty away. Through textual criticism, through higher criticism, through lower criticism, through all sorts of different theories. We see that all being shoved in our faces in the seminaries and the modern books that are coming out, even by good godly men. Even by good godly men. They have a heart that's at the root of it, at the heart of it, not their heart. At the heart of what they're doing is atheism. That's the foundation, is unbelief. God gives us certainty in faith. Certainty in faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. A lot of our good brothers in in the faith, a lot of good evangelical leaders, reformed leaders, want to take that certainty away. We don't know if the ending of Mark is legit. We don't know if the, what the Second Temple Judaism looked like, and thus we need to figure that out and interpret the New Testament in that way, have a new perspective on Paul. What he meant by justification is something very different. And our Reformed brothers, lots of them are, ooh, we've eaten that up. Thank you, Bishop Wright. MacArthur, he said a great thing. When uh, N.T. Wright's book came out on the atonement a couple years ago, he said, N.T. Wright, more like N.T. Wrong. Cheesy, but it's good. Notice also on this point, we have certainty that Christ is the mediator we need because the scriptures. Notice also that in the same point, that we can know the Bible is God's word. We can know that. We can. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 1. Chapter 1, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Matches the London Baptist and the Savoy as well because they copied it. This was good. Paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from evidence? No, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That's where it lies. How do you know? Because the Holy Spirit tells you so. That's how you know. Ultimately. There's all these other great reasons. There's all these other great reasons. They talk about the the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation. The many other incomparable excellencies. If you've ever read some other false book, it would be the Book of Mormon, Quran the Apocrypha. If you read Bell and the Dragon, and then you read Proverbs, one is full of incomparable excellencies. The other one is nonsense. (laughs) It's nonsense. The Holy Spirit witnesses within you that that is not true. So if you stop before you get to the Holy Spirit bearing witness in your heart that it is the Word of God, you'll have no certainty. You'll just have evidence. Those are good things. They're good evidences. They're good evidences. But the divines, they rested upon The Holy Spirit bearing witness in our hearts. And right they did. 
For that is the testimony of the scriptures themselves as to how we can even know. Also, notice this in question 19, our last point, how can we have certainty? They point that the gospel was revealed to Adam in the garden, in paradise. Covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. I like to look a little bit farther back and see the covenant of redemption as well. But the covenant of grace right there. As we talked about at the very beginning. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Didn't die. Something definitely took place. Judgment came upon him. Sin came upon him. And the judgment for sin came upon him. But God had something else in mind. Something else in mind entirely. Not just to punish wicked sinners and get glory from it. He does do that. But something even greater. A greater display of his love. Again, I, I have to remind people often, and I think it's, I think it's worth noting. And when you're sharing the, sharing the gospel with somebody, a, a friend, a, a family member, a neighbor, co-worker, you, you'll get this kind of response, this retort sometimes. Well, how could God, I thought God was loving and good, how could he send people to hell? Something we need to get through to them. Something you need to remember. And then when you talk about Calvinism, doctrines of grace, things like that, why would God save only some and not the others? How could God be loving if he chooses to pass over some and not save them and the reprobate, etc., etc.? That's very easily answered if you understand theology proper. If you understand who God is, that's all very easily solved. Because God in himself, his attribute is love, is mercy, is goodness. He cannot deny himself. And he remains those things outside of ever creating man. He didn't create man and then he became a merciful, loving, revealing God. No. He always was those things and he always will be those things. God is immutable. Immutable. He does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he does not change, then God could have been willing to not save anyone. He would certainly be just in that. He didn't save any of the angels. He didn't take on the form of an angel. He took on the form of a man. And had God not taken on the form of a man, he would be loving. If he would have sent every human being who would ever live to hell, he would be loving, gracious, merciful, kind, long-suffering, patient, because that's who he is. His response to man, his creation who sinned against him, does not change that. But what a glorious and wonderful beauty and truth it is that before us, when he comes to Adam in the garden, curses Adam and Eve, and he curses the serpent, and he says to the serpent that ancient serpent of old, the devil. He says in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's the proto-evangelium. The first gospel. The covenant of grace. This has always been God's purpose. And that's one of the errors, one of the many, of certain breeds of dispensationalists. They want to cut and divide it up. God didn't change and it was kind of a side thing he did. I'm going to do the church. I'm going to start saving people through Jesus and the rest they'll be saved through sacrifices and works. No. This has been God's plan since day one after the fall and I would argue since the covenant of redemption. 
in eternity. God has always designed, he's, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So therefore, this was always his design. Covenant of grace. That's the first thing they point to in the Heidelberg Catechism. From the Holy Gospel, which God himself revealed in paradise. And afterward, published by the patriarchs and the prophets. Where are the patriarchs and the prophets? The Old Testament scriptures. And that's why I say often, and will continue to say, as long as there's breath in my lungs, that every page of the Old Testament is about Christ. Amen. It's about Christ. We must see Christ in it. If we not, we're wasting it. Jesus himself did that. When he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, as he walked with them on the road to Emmaus, his two disciples, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Now, these are all about me. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says to the Jews, search the scriptures. He gives that command. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Which testify of me. So you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading Leviticus. It can be, it can be you know, a groan sometimes to get through that book. But not if you get out Matthew Henry's commentary. Not if you start to train yourself to think like Matthew Henry in that book. If you start looking for Christ. It's better to err on the side of almost fanciful looking for Christ while you're reading the book of Leviticus than it is to think it's not about Jesus at all. Look under every promise, every law, every ceremonial Command, where's Jesus? You'll find him. The whole Old Testament is about him. The scriptures, he says, they are they which testify of me. And then in verse 46 and 47, he says to them, for had ye believed Moses, because they're, they're applying to Moses, they're saying, well, Moses says this, Moses says that. He said, had you actually believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me, but if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? One and the same. Notice lastly, we'll close with this. The Heidelberg points this, that he's represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly, has fulfilled it in his only begotten son, it being our knowledge of Jesus being our mediator. From the scriptures, we have certainty. It was typified Jesus was typified in the Old Testament sacrifices. And also, our knowledge, our certainty that Christ is who he says he is, that we have a mediator between us and God, is that he fulfilled all of the Old Testament in Christ. Filled the promise from Genesis 3.15 all the way through all the types and shadows in Christ. Flip with me, if you would, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's very, clear, very, very clearly laid out for us by the Apostle. Hebrews 10.1 Hebrews 10.1 For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. So they were shadows. They pointed to Christ. Then in verse 11, the apostle says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice 
for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's a little different, right? The other couldn't, couldn't do anything. It was a shadow. It was a type that pointed to what is to come. And then verses 19 through 20, the apostle through 25, excuse me, then tells us how we're supposed to live. How we're supposed to live then in light of that. Verse 19, he says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holies, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. That's how we're supposed to live in light of this. That's how we're supposed to live in light of this, is what the apostle is telling us. Our Christian life is not supposed to be dry. Our Christian life is not supposed to be some dry, orthodox practice, and that's it. It's a lively, experiential, rich, living with Christ and for Christ. And if you're not having that, then have boldness to enter into the holies. To the holiest place, by the blood of Christ. The issue is with us always. The issue is always with us. Our dryness of faith, our lack of passion, our lack of desire for Christ always starts with us. That's why he says then, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. He's talking about the means of grace here. Therefore, having such a high priest, having this truth laid before us, having this certainty that Christ is who he says he is, therefore live in such a way as to honor him and glorify him. Live in such a way as to provoke one another unto good works. To move each other towards serving him. To move one another towards loving him. That's your goal. That's your only purpose in life. That's it. It's to love Christ, serve him. In light of what he's done for us. That's good news. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And lastly, Romans 10.4, it's typified in the Old Testament sacrifices. We just looked at some verses for that, and it's fulfilled in Christ. Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4. Apostle Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That's it. The end of the law. Faith in Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So our good works, our repentance, our living and seeking after God are not means by which we are trying to sanctify ourselves. The Bible does tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but then it gives us the reason why that's even happening. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why. That's how. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You see a lot of of, of people now. Good men and and women, I believe. Believers. Reformed. Saying, you need to repent of known sins and then come to Christ. That's mixing works with faith. That's mixing works with Christ. 
You repent of sin, yes. You repent of who you are as an unbeliever, as an unregenerate, and this is all done by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, and come to Christ who makes you new. And after that, all the commands for us to serve him, to continue in repentance, to continue in serving God. Those are to increase our joy, to glorify God, to draw us closer to him. Whenever you start basing your Christian life on what you're doing, whenever you start basing your Christian life and your approach to God and to the holies based on what have I done, how good am I, what am I doing, now Christ is not the end for you. You are now another high priest who is going to offer continually day by day those same old sacrifices that cannot take away sin. You must take Christ up in your arms and come to the Father only by Christ. Only by Christ. Or you will have no growth, no grace, no change in your heart. In Christ, we are a new creature. And we will live differently, of course. But we can't base anything on works. Can't base anything on works. None of it. You have to repent of known sins to get saved. You have to come to Christ to be saved. You have to repent of unbelief. And believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it. Very simple. And after you are a regenerate believer, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be sanctified. Thou shalt continue on in the faith. Thou thou shalt work out thy own salvation with fear and trembling. It's beautiful. It's all Christ from beginning to end. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the end of the day. Christ Jesus. End of the law. Thus, with all this in front of us, dear church, with that answer, whence knowest thou this? The scriptures tell us. Then I plead with you obey the scriptures, believe the scriptures. Don't rest on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Commit your way to the Lord. He shall make your path straight. Meditate day and night on the scriptures. Don't make your own decisions. Make the decisions God has required of thee. That alone. And thus we can end by saying, What is thy only comfort in life and death? Let's look. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that in all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. The, tri- the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all work in unison in our salvation. We should be grateful. We should be very grateful. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. Lord, I ask that thou would bless this word to thy people's hearts and minds, that would strengthen them, Lord, that thou would help all of us to live for thee, to love thee more, to love thy son, and see him. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. We give the benediction at this time. stand. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.
You are dismissed. Thank you.